This is Daniel Self, lead pastor of the Orchard Church, and I'm so glad you're joining us today. Afterwards, if you would like and subscribe, or if you want more information on The Orchard or to support this ministry, find us at theorchardlife.com. Now know that we are praying for you today, that God would speak to you, and you would have a breakthrough. So glad you were here this morning. We have a powerful message for you when we asked, what do we speak about the last day of the year as we look forward to what God would have for us in the coming year? And I want to start by telling you a bit about an extraordinary woman named Corrie Ten Boom. She was born in the late 1800s, and her father was a watchmaker. She was a very bright young girl. She was dedicated, and in 1922, she became the first woman to be a licensed watchmaker. A family with a deep faith in Jesus, she was constantly gathering groups of the children around her from the city and also who worked and as a place for them to learn the trade, but also to learn about faith in Jesus. And then World War II hit, and Corey and her father and her sister Betsy saw the horrendous acts of the Nazis, and they began to hide many of these children they have come to know and love and their families at great risk to themselves. There are some amazing stories of the lives that Corey and her family saved and the grandchildren who are now adults because of her courage. I would encourage you to go check out the book of Corey Ten Boom or watch some videos on her amazing woman. But around 1230 on February 28, 1944, a Dutch informant told the Nazis about the Ten Booms hiding and all this hiding of the, the Jewish people and the work that they were doing, and they were swiftly arrested and taken away to Ravensbrück concentration camp. Even there, Corey Ten Boom would not stop sharing her faith. With a smuggled Bible, Corey and her sister set up a Bible study there in the concentration camp. And they continued to teach the ways of Jesus in conditions we can't even fathom. Corey actually tells some stories that are hard to speak about, let alone, let alone imagine. She would go to the fence, and on the other side of the fence would be rows and rows of Jewish children who that day were being sent to the gas chamber. And she would, against the fence, preach the news of Jesus to them that although this may be their last day on earth, if they placed their faith in Jesus, they would awaken in heaven. Corey Ten Boom was an evangelist in the worst circumstances that humanity has to offer. She went on to say that it was there in those camps, in those conditions, where she found her most valuable life's work. Through the brutality of the guards, her sister Betsy began to be broken and was being wasted away. And it became clear that Betsy was not going to survive much longer. Corey talks about when she sat there with her sister Betsy at the very end. She says this was the last words that Betsy spoke to her. There's no pit so deep that God is not deeper still. That no matter the horrifying circumstances, no matter how dark the valley that God was still present, there was still goodness, and he was still at work. And strangely, through a clerical error later on, Corey was released, and the first thing she did was to go set up a rehabilitation center for concentration camp survivors. In the war, she had lost everything, everything. Her family, her childhood, her, her innocence, 
but it did not steal or rob her of her deep faith in Jesus. Truly, Cory Tamboom is an amazing human being. But one day, she tells this story. I've listened to the audio of the entirety. She tells the story how she was approached by a very much older gentleman. And he said in his German, do you remember me? And Corey took a long look at him and was appalled to realize that it was one of the cruelest guards at Ravensbrook where she and Betsy had been. I listened to her voice as she recounted this meeting and even the memories she had of this specific person. He had been especially cruel to her sister Betsy and was responsible for her death. Corey was in absolute shock. You can, you can imagine the flashbacks, the anguish, the pain, the rage, the fear even that she faced in that moment. The guard went on to tell her that he had learned about faith in God. He learned about faith in Jesus and about forgiveness. And while he did believe that God had forgiven him, he said that he wanted to find, and this is how he, she said it, one of his victims to speak to and apologize and ask for forgiveness. And in his German, he said, Fraulein Timboom, would you forgive me? I don't even know how you asked that. I don't know how you answered that. And so I'll let her give you Will you forgive me? And I could not. I remembered the suffering of my dying sister through him. But when I saw, when I experienced that I could not forgive, suddenly I knew I myself have no forgiveness. But I was not able, I could not, I could only hate him. I took one of these beautiful texts, one of these boundless resources, Romans 5.5, 5, and thank you, Father, that your love is stronger than my hatred and unforgiveness. That same moment, I was free. And I could say, brother, give me your hand, and I shook hands with him. And it was as if I felt God's love stream through my arms. You never touch so the ocean of God's love as that you forgive your enemies. Now that is not an ordinary story of forgiveness. That is an extraordinary she says, you've never touched the ocean of God's love until, uh, love until you've forgiven your enemies. And Corey's heart-wrenching, courageous, and magnificent story shows us the power of something that I want to end the year on. Something called grace. It reveals that things like hatred and revenge and bitterness and the worst of humanity don't have to get the final word because of the grace of God. People say that love wins, but truly, I believe grace wins. I believe grace is undefeated. I believe grace pays the debts that we cannot pay. I believe grace is victorious when all hope of redemption seems lost. Grace wins. And by the end of today's sermon, I want you to have come to two, face-to-face -to -face with two different things.
The first would be, I want you to look again at the grace of Jesus in his sacrifice with new eyes. The amazing power of his grace. I don't want us to enter the new year with the grip of shame and guilt for what we have done or what we are doing around our throats. Today, may God reveal to us that grace can free us and we can start a new year as truly a new creation. Yes, you, with the doubts you have right now, with the things that you wonder, yes, but they don't know what I've done. Those things, everything. And the second thing I want you to come face to face with is I want you to look at your life and see where you need to give grace to others. May we not take our bitterness or resentment into 2024 with us. Let us leave the resentment and anger and walk freely into a new year by giving grace to those who've wronged us. Grace is in the Bible all throughout, and I want to see what does Jesus have to say about grace. There are so many illustrations, so many parables, so many teachings. We're just going to touch on one. Here's what he says in a parable in Matthew 18, verse 23. He says, The kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who decided to bring his accounts up to date with his servants who had borrowed money from him, people who are in debt. In the process, one of his debtors was brought in who owed him millions of dollars. The original language here talks about the measure, a measure of gold, a talent, and how these measures of gold are worth 20 wages. The amount that this man owed the king is a staggering debt of 200,000 years of salary. The king finds a servant who owes him 200,000 years of debt. Truly a debt he could not pay. A debt so large that he could not work long enough, work hard enough to ever repay until he was dead and he was released from it. A debt that was unmanageable, unresolvable. What does the king do to such a servant? So since the servant was not able to pay this debt, his master ordered that the servant be sold along with his wife and his children, everything he owned to pay the debt, as was the culture. Hearing this, the servant fell on his knees before the king. Please be patient with me, and I will, pay every, I will pay everything back. And the king, at this, was filled with pity. He released him and forgave his debt. The king doesn't give the man more time. He doesn't say, you know, take as much time as you need, or I'll shave off some of it. I'll, I'll take away the interest. He releases him completely from all of it, all the debt. He shockingly forgives the man. He forgives the man a debt that would be impossible to pay on his own. When Jesus is telling this parable, he starts by saying, um, my kingdom is like this. He's telling us a little bit, a taste of how the Father operates toward us. That there's a debt that we have that cannot be paid in this life. It's too large, a debt of sin. But there is this great, there's this grace that forgives an impossible debt. And the servant who is forgiven this debt, I mean, can you imagine how he must feel? If someone walked up to you who had the means and said, I want to pay off all of your debt and that of all your family, how would you feel? I, I, would, I would start jumping, crying. I would, I would be overcome with gratitude and disbelief. I mean, this servant, what must he have felt? He almost lost his wife, his children, his whole life. But in one moment of undeserved grace from the king, he was instantaneously free. 
He's been given the greatest gift, the gift of grace. And in the wake of grace is freedom. This is what Jesus did for us upon the cross. Jesus forgives for us the debt of sin that we have that is unmanageable and unpayable. And if I were that servant, I would be absolutely overcome. Jesus did this for me. And there should be a great amount of gratitude and joy based on what God has done for me and perhaps for you if you claim to be a follower of Jesus. Every Christian, like Corey Ten Boom, like myself, like many of you, we have been forgiven a great debt by Jesus. His grace has covered so much in our lives. And because we've been have, had this great grace, then we should go out and give grace on, shouldn't we? Those who've been forgiven much go forth and they forgive. Unfortunately, that isn't how most people who claim to be Jesus, followers of Jesus behave. That's not the reputation that the church of Jesus has. We should be known as people who go out, go out and give grace because we've been given grace. But Jesus in this parable speaks about how many of us have chosen to respond when given such great grace. The forgiven servant left the king's presence and went out and went to one of his fellow servants who owed him a few thousand in debt. This is much smaller, manageable debt compared to what he had. He grabbed him by the throat and demanded, pay back what you owe me. The poor servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me, I'll pay it back. It sounds familiar, doesn't it? But he refused. Instead, he had the man arrested, thrown in prison until the debt was paid in full. The man who had been forgiven an impossible debt left and found someone who owed him a smaller debt. And what did he do? He demanded payment, though the man begged him with the exact same words that he had used not moments earlier in the presence in the throne room of the king. The forgiven servant refused to forgive the one who owed him. And we learn some very important things here. Those of us who claim to follow Jesus, we need to inspect our lives with great clarity today. Because of the cross, because of the grace we have been given, it is paid for all of our debt of sin and given us freedom and joy. And yet many of us continue to walk forth holding others in a way that God has not held us. We have been given amazing grace, but we are not extending this grace to others so the question is, I'm going to ask this at the first today, we'll talk more about it, who is it you need to give grace to in your life? Who is it in your life that you need to give grace to? Remember, the opposite of grace is giving grace is, is bitterness and resentment, and bitterness and resentment is a pill that I swallow and I hope poisons the other person. It's only hurting me. And so the question is, who do you need to give grace to today? Some of us here today don't know about this whole church thing. We're new to this. Perhaps you are here with somebody. You're a guest, and you don't know about all this. In fact, some people in here are listening online. You have been wounded by religion, and you've been, you've been wounded by religious people. Someone close to you has, has directly hurt you or a loved one, and they claim to be a Christian, they claim to be a part of the church. I want you to see something in this parable of God's kingdom that may allow you a little freedom. The servant of the king who was forgiven a great debt, he acted terribly. 
He was judgmental. He was demanding. And he had no grace to give, though he had received grace. But I'll say this. Do not confuse the king's unforgiving servant with the king himself. The king has the character of love and the character of grace. The king is good even when his people are not. The king has an offer of grace even when his people offer judgment. Do not confuse a loving God with imperfect people who claim to know him, speak for him, or follow him. Because if you finish the parable, you will see that when the king hears of the forgiven servant and how he treated others, he calls him back in and he treats him in such a way that most, most so-called Christians would be very uncomfortable. You see, if you were hurt by the church or by religious people, on behalf of God's people and God's church, I want to apologize. And I want you to know that what you experienced in that place at that time from those people was not God. What you experienced was the servant from the story. Someone who claimed to know God's goodness, who, who had gotten some of God's goodness, yet passed on something far more sinister. Oftentimes, people walk away from God, not because of God, but because of people who claim to follow him and speak for him. God forgive us, and God help us. Help us as we live our faith here. Help us as we live our lives here, that we may be the people who represent God with his grace and truth and love. We need to have grace for other people. And I just want to have a, a quick aside to add into this, because there's always this question, Yes, we need to get rid of bitterness and resentment and have grace, but many times in circumstances, it is not healthy to go reconcile with that person. I understand that. There are people I have grace towards and I have given grace to that I will hopefully never see again in my life. God doesn't require you to trust them. He doesn't require you to like them. He does ask us to love them and give them his grace. And so for some, it's not, as we get to the end of this sermon later, it is not healthy for you to go try to reconcile in person. You can give them grace from your heart. And when you release that person from your bitterness, who is it you actually release? Yourself. We need to have grace for other people. But first, let's be reminded of something. There's a step before that, and that is this, God's great grace for us. Because before we enter this new year, grace may be what you need most this morning. Because of your past, because of your present, grace may be what you need to be reminded of and, and immersed in and leave this place changed because of. It reminds me of a story in the self-house that happened five years ago. My son was five years old then, and it has all, everything to do with grace. Elijah was around five, six years old. He was playing in our garage, playing on top of the car, and unknown to him, there was a chip in our Subaru windshield. He climbed up on it. He liked to climb on top of it. He's a little guy. He's having fun. And as he climbed up, we heard a terrible crunching sound. His face went white. His eyes went wide, and we went out to see that there in that windshield, 
The windshield wasn't cracked. The passenger side was spiderwebbed. Cracks everywhere. Ruined. His face fell. His lip quivered. This was not a sin. It's a mistake. But for a little five-year-old, this was the greatest thing he had ever done in his life that was bad. He could not believe that he had just done this. He broke down into tears. And in his guilt, as he could speak, he said, Daddy, I'm going to pay for it. I'm going to pay for the windshield. All my monies, all my dollars, and all my cents. And despite my trying to stop him, he ran to his room, counted up his money carefully and tearfully, and brought it back down to us with big eyes of tears. I want to pay for it, Daddy. And he offered $3.19. All his monies, everything in his life he could bring to bear to pay for what he had done. Now, based on the availability and being the weekend and all these things, we could not get the windshield fixed right away. And so we had many days of using the car, driving the car with that spiderweb windshield there to look out of. It was a cobweb of broken glass that every time Elijah would get in the car, he was reminded of his mistake. His greatest failing was ever before him. He would get in and see it and look down. He could barely even look at it. His mood would change. His countenance would change based on what he had done. Whenever we went somewhere, whenever we drove somewhere, his shame was ever before him. The result of his, his mistake, of his actions, changed, changed his perspective. It changed how he perceived the world moving forward. He had to now look through the shattered brokenness that he had created. Now we get this. You get this. I get this. Each of us, we have all done something or said something or made a decision that has shattered a windshield in our lives. The windshield of our character, spiderweb shattered by the ongoing choices that we make or the things we do privately. The windshield of our marriage or relationships shattered by our anger or our decisions, our private life devastated by the secret vices that we keep and carry with us. Our friendships shattered by gossip or, or insecurity. Our anger cracking the tender hearts of our kids or our, our loved ones around us. We've all shattered windshields. We've all broken things in our life, in our character. And what do we do? We move forward with it right there in front of us like my son. We experience life through these shattered broken glasses of our brokenness and we begin to perceive things differently. We begin to have a different perspective. And what happens? We kind of get used to it. You become accustomed to the cracks in your character. You move forward and get accustomed to the growing cracks in your relationship. Do you remember sometime driving down the highway when that car, likely an out-of-state person, hey, it's a message on grace and we'll get there at the end, but until then, right? The out-of-state person drives by and that little rock flies and hits your windshield and whack and it has that little chip, that crack, and oh, you begin to feel the rage. And if your kids are in the car, you say things that you have to explain to them. And then, as it, what happens? What happens to it? It begins to grow, doesn't it? As often the cracks in our character and our relationships do, it begins to grow and effects of it as the brokenness spreads. But here's what I've noticed in life. For many people, give them a few weeks. Give them a month or so. You get used to driving around with that there. You, get, you accept the new perspective. 
of looking at life through brokenness. We adjust ourselves to deal with the effects. And we get used to this is the way it is. You know, given enough time, even Elijah would have looked through the spiderweb cracked windshield and become accustomed to what life looks through through that. I know this because in my life, I have shattered my character. I have broken my character. I have splintered relationships with words or with anger. I, I have done these things. And we get used to the perspective. We grow accustomed to it. We grow accustomed at viewing life through our brokenness. This is how it is now. And the question is, what will we do about it? Or what can we do about it? Well, for Elijah, it was a much easier than our character. I, I had an appointment to fix it, and later that day, I picked him up in my truck while the car was at home, completely fixed. He got in, and I adjusted my rearview mirror to, to view my little five-year-old dude in the back so I could see his face. And I knew this was going to be a moment, a tender moment of conversation between me and him, and I wanted him to learn some things from this. I did not want him to learn, don't climb on the car. He learned that. I wanted to learn something deep about the kingdom of God, about his father and his heavenly father. So I asked him, hey, buddy, we need to talk about the windshield. Now, can you imagine being in a car with somebody and you get in and they go, we need to talk about your worst sin. Oh, that's a good ride. Like, sign me up for this one. Let's talk about the affair. Like, let's, let's, let's talk about the broken character. Let's talk about that secret vice. Let's talk about that issue. His face dropped, and he said, Daddy, I don't, I don't, wanna, I don't even like to think about it. And so I asked him, I said, well, bud, what, what should we do about the windshield? Daddy, I will pay for it. All my monies and all the monies I ever earn. I knew this was a tender moment. I knew this was sacred space. I said, bud, all the monies you have aren't enough. And he, I can see him wince at that. Like, we have this need to pay for it. Oh, we long for penance. He, I said, hey, bud, there's no way you can fix this. You see, there's no way a five-year-old can pay that debt. It's impossible debt. And I watched him there in the rear view mirror, or in my mirror as he squirmed and he was stuck in that place. And I said, Elijah, I want you to know something. When we get home, the windshield is perfect. Like it never happened. Like you never broke it. His eyes went wide. Daddy, I have to pay for that. I have to pay for it. Mommy and Daddy already paid for it. Daddy, I have to pay. And I began to talk to him. I said, buddy, there's, there, there, there's no payment available. There's no payment left. The windshield is perfect. Wait till you see it. It's like you never did it. And Mommy and Daddy, we love you so much that we paid for it. Why? So that you don't have to. It's done. It's completely fixed and it's completely paid for. There's nothing you could even pay for. But my monies, I remember, my monies, what do I do with my monies? I said, and, that, and we all do this, what do I do? I, I gotta do something. And I said, bud, when you receive a gift like this, and you have your monies, find someone to pass it on to. 
Find someone to pass it on to. Who, who could you go out and bless? And he thought back there, and, I could, and his eyes lit up, and he goes, I know, I will use my money to buy a friend some Hot Wheels because they don't have many. Now, in five-year-old world, I mean, that is the street value on a new Hot Wheel. It's pretty high. And he's going to use his monies to buy some Hot Wheels for a friend who didn't have many. You see, that five-year-old just got a taste of amazing grace, and I wanted him to see there's nothing he could do to pay for it, but he could pass on grace. Romans 1, 5 echoes this. Through Jesus, we received grace and the urgent task of passing it on to others. You see, this is how God works. He has given us grace, paying for it all, but we don't just receive grace, or actually some just do, but we're called to bear grace, and greater than that, we are called to go give grace. Above all the people in all the world, those who know Jesus and the grace of God in our lives should be grace givers. We know amazing grace. We sing about amazing grace. We should give amazing grace. And Elijah learned a lesson that day I did not need my son to learn a lesson about penance or fairness or guilt. Life has plenty of those lessons for him. He needs to learn about his father in heaven's grace. And there are debts that can go, can, he cannot pay for that his father will cover. What does our world need? What does our world need from God's people? Does it need more religious people to pass on judgment and the sin police? Or does it need people of God, to pass on the grace and the love they've been given. If Jesus says they'll know us by our love, if right above it it says that we have an urgent mission to pass on grace, let us do that. You see, grace pays the debt fully. And the people of grace, we should pass the grace of God on. This is a fundamental bedrock truth of love God, love people, which we claim as our mission and vision of the church, to be grace givers. We pass on love and the grace to those around us, those who deserve it and those who do not, those who you can reconcile with and those who through healthy boundaries or because of circumstances you should not or cannot, we still give grace. You see, grace is a gift, and a gift it is a gift without a price tag for us, because Jesus paid for all of it. Listen to Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. It's by grace you have been saved. By grace you have been saved. By grace you have been saved through faith. It is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God. Not from your work. Not from your good deeds. Not from your attendance in church. Not from your service. Not from your charity. Not from all your monies. Not from your $3.19. You can't earn this grace. You can't buy this grace. It's a gift. We all have a cracked windshield in life. We all have a debt of sin we cannot pay. And some of us with a sense of justice and responsibility, like my son, we, we get this. I have to do something. But in those moments, we sound just like Elijah in the back seat, offering all of our monies for something that we can never repay. Jesus said, he would say to us, my daughter, my son, there's nothing left to pay. There is no penance. There is no penance. I paid it all on the cross. Every sin, the ones you've committed, the ones you're living in, the ones you will. God's grace is that big. 
It's called amazing grace for a reason. It's amazing. God makes it brand new. He makes us new. Our God loves us so much, he paid it in full. You see, grace went to a cross because of love. Not because we earned it, not because you deserve it, not be, it's only because God loves you and grace loves you. I didn't pay for Elijah's windshield because he earned a windshield. I paid for his, the windshield for him because I wanted him to know what love is and I love him and I, I got him. And our God's got you. Romans 5 puts it this way. When we were still powerless, Christ died for us. God showed us his own love for us in this. While we were dead in our sin, Jesus died for us. He did the work. He did for us what we can never do for ourselves. Jesus and his sacrifice are, are, are a beacon of grace, a light of grace that calls people to his grace. Come and receive forgiveness. Receive forgiveness for what you have done, for what has been done to you, for what, all the things that you have shame on, for all the things you carry guilt about. Come to the grace of God. Grace meets us where we, wherever we are. And grace takes us where we can never go on our own. In grace, God takes our lives and does something beautiful. He empowers us for a new life and a new purpose, a new freedom. In the wake of grace is always freedom. And that's what we have freedom to pursue him in purpose. He gives us what else? He gives us forgiveness in our past. He gives us peace in our present. And he gives us hope for the future. Not just eternal future someday, but future tomorrow. That tomorrow can be better than today. God truly does for us what we cannot do. To take us where we cannot go. Doing in us and for us what we could never earn on our own. I want to end with a video that is a taste of the grace of God. Just an earthly video that gives us just one picture of grace. The Father's love and the Father's grace. And I would encourage you to find some tissue. The next video is of two favorite people of mine. The son's name is Rick and the father's name is Dick Hoyt. Rick, the son, was born with the umbilical cord wrapped around his throat and caused him severe trauma. His mind was perfectly there. His body did not respond. The doctors told Dick at this young age to put his son in a home. Put your son in a home, it's too much trouble. Put your son in a home and forget about him. They quoted that. But the father would not do that. When Rick was 15, they had found for him a device where he could speak. The device would speak for him. And he, 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 his father came to him and Rick, through the device, told his father, he asked, Father, could we run, Dad, can we run a race together? for a classmate of mine who's been in an accident. Well, Dick was 36, and Dick said, I, I'm not a runner. I, I don't want to be a runner. But Dick loaded his son into that rickety wheelchair they had, and they ran that race. And Dick, that, he was exhausted. He flopped on the couch that night, pushing his son that first day. He went up to see his boy that night, and through the computer, his son said, Dad, when I'm running, I feel free. I love that he says when I'm running. 
Like Dick's the one doing all the work and Rick's the one experiencing all the joy and freedom. The father is truly empowering the child to do what he could never do for himself. And needless to say, Dick said he decided right there and then, well, I'm a runner now. We're going to do a lot more running. I want my boy to feel that. And so while Rick would be at school, Dick would get off early and come home and he said that he would get cement bags and put them in the wheelchair and run through the neighborhood to train for his son. So his child could experience freedom and joy. And they ran. They ran a lot. 5K, 10K. Race after race after race. Half marathon. Full marathon. In this video you're about to watch, it's about a picture of God's grace in action. This is a symbol of God's grace in what Jesus has done for us. You see, Jesus did all the work so we can experience all the freedom and joy. Jesus gave himself so we could experience the fullness of life. And the father allows his child to live a life that he can never do on his own. And so the video, you're going to see Dick and Rick Hoyt as they compete in an Ironman triathlon. In Hawaii, claimed to be the most difficult there is, with winds gusting so hard that it blows bikers off the trail. And there's Dick with a sail named Rick in front of him, blowing them. With Rick in a raft, Dick will swim 20, sorry, 2.4 miles. He will then get out, carry his son to a bike, put Rick on the front, and then ride 112 miles. Then finally, they'll dismount the bike, get in the wheelchair, and run for 26.22 miles. The father does this so that his son can feel joy. And as you watch this video, I don't want you to just watch, be caught up in the mechanics of it and the, the amazing feats of cardio and strength. I want you to look at the faces. I want you to look at the face of the father. I want you to look at the face as, as, the, as the father is gritting through this and imagine that Jesus has done all the work for you and what he must have looked like on, on the cross. I want you to look at the face of the child and the joy. I want you to see the grace of God in action, bringing freedom and joy where we could not and cannot bring it for ourselves. And at the end of the video, you're going to see them cross a finish line. And you're going to see the child celebrate. And someday, you will cross a finish line and you will celebrate the completion of a race that you've run called life. And it will be your savior who powered you in the whole way. Let's watch this.